0: I'm just going to open God's Word and read the Bible um, from Acts chapter 15. I'm going to start at verse 36 and read all the way through to the end of chapter 16. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas and Mark sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived whose mother was Jewish and a believer but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they travelled from town to town they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in the Jerusalem for the people to obey so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia when they came to the border of Mysia they tried to enter Bithynia but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samanthras. And on the next day, we went to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, the Lord opened her heart and to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before him. He was filled with joy because he had become to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release these men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the Magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left.
1: Well, welcome Newey, Pam and Lake Mac, to church. And how awesome is that passage? That is a passage that is full of miracles and just amazing stuff that is happening. And I reckon it raises a question for us. How do you recognize the hand of God at work in the world? So in 1989, Newcastle and Lake Mac had a massive earthquake that killed 13 people. Was that the hand of God? Or at New South Wales, we've just kind of finished this severe drought throughout most of New South Wales. Was it the hand of God who brought the rain? Or was it the hand of God at work in bringing the drought in the first place? How do we recognise the hand of God at work in the world? And how do we recognise the hand of God at work in our personal lives? Is God at work in the person who gets cancer? Is God at work in the person who gets cured from cancer? Is God at work in the person who gets that job they've been praying for? Is God at work in the person who loses their job? And how does God guide us in making decisions in this life? The passage we're looking at today, it's full of extraordinary events happening, some amazing miracles. And it's a passage that has pretty significant implications for Christians. It has implications for how we view God for our assurance with God, and actually how we make decisions in life. It's a passage that's talked about a lot when we come to the topic of divine guidance. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to get our head around the geography of this second missionary journey that Paul is starting. And then we're actually going to wrestle with a couple of wrong ways to read Acts 16. And then I want to give you, from what I think Luke wants to give us, a much bigger picture of the God God that we worship from Acts 16. So where are we up to in Acts? Last week we saw at the council of Jerusalem this twofold affirmation by the leaders who met together that salvation it is by grace alone and that the gospel this salvation of God through the gospel is coming not just to the Jews but also to the Gentiles those non-Jewish people unity is coming to all humanity through the gospel. Now, from the passage that we're in from verse 36, we see that Paul, he's in Antioch now and he wants to kick off his second missionary journey, going back to the churches that already exist, preaching the gospel to strengthen and encourage them. But then Paul and Barnabas, they have a bit of a barney. All right. They have a disagreement over Barnabas's cousin, Mark. Apparently, he abandoned them on the first missionary journey. And so there's this really human event that happens where they agree to disagree and they end up going their separate ways. And so Barnabas takes Mark and he goes off and then Paul takes Silas and he goes through the way he wanted to go on his second mission missionary journey, starting with the churches that have already been planted. And so this is the journey, the beginning of that journey as Luke recounts it for us on a map. So check out the map here. Paul and Silas, they start in Antioch. Then in verse 41, after the Barney, they go through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches that have already been planted. They end up at Derbe. From there, they go to Lystra. And they also probably visited Iconium right next door in that region. Now, it's in this area that they meet Timothy, who's a Christian. And because he's half Greek and half Jew, even though at the Council of Jerusalem, they've affirmed you don't need to be circumcised to be saved, Paul makes this very strategic decision to give Timothy the snip. He becomes more like a Jew, and the reason he does it is for the sake of preaching the gospel to the Jewish people in the region. So, fellas, be thankful that there's not many Jewish Christians for us to have to do that. And then they experience something that's really extraordinary. Have a look what happens here in the next part of their journey. They travel through the region of Phrygia and Galatia and then the Holy Spirit closes a door for them to enter into the province of Asia. So they can't get into Asia. Then at the border of Mysia, they try and enter Bithynia to the north. But again, the Spirit of Jesus closes the door that way as well. So in verse 8, they just keep going west. They go to Troas and while they're in Troas, in verse 9, Paul has this vision of a man from Macedonia begging him, come to Macedonia and help us. And so that's what they do. As the journey continues, they go via the island of Samathras and then the harbour at Neapolis, and then they end up in verse 12 in Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of Macedonia. Now, there are some extraordinary things. That happen in this part of Acts and also throughout the rest of the chapter but particularly here this idea of these closed doors the Holy Spirit preventing them from entering Asia and Bithynia and then this vision this open door to go to Macedonia. So how do we interpret these amazing things and apply the book of Acts to our lives as we think about making decisions and divine guidance? Well this is where I want to introduce you to two wrong ways of reading this passage the first way is the skeptic now many of you tuning in you may not consider yourself to be a christian and you might put yourself in that skeptic uh, kind of category and we would want to say welcome keep wrestling and thinking through this but the skeptic reads passages like this and they're cynical they would say this was the first century where there was no scientific explanation for these kind of events so people just attributed this stuff to the hand of god These open and closed doors, they're just weird coincidences. And later in the passage, there's a big earthquake, sure, but we know about tectonic plates now. So the skeptic reads Acts and they say, well, most of this extraordinary stuff, either it didn't happen or probably it's just got some sort of reason or some sort of scientific explanation. And so the more we can then explain what is going on from a scientific point of view, then the less we actually need the hand of God throughout any of this and for those who would consider themselves a Christian and kind of still err towards being a skeptic for them then they would say well look there's no such thing as miracles it all has a scientific explanation and so everything is just reasoned away on the other hand you have the Christian sensationalist They look at all the extraordinary things, the miracles that happen in this passage, and they say, look at the timing of the earthquake that we're going to look at in a bit later. Or look at these open and closed doors. That is the hand of God at work in the world. And so the Christian sensationalists, they read Acts and they say, look at all these extraordinary things that they experienced. That is how you are to experience God as well. And so they're always looking for the hand of God in their own life through the spectacular, through the amazing, through visions, through unexplainable coincidences, through the sensational. Now, what happens for someone who's down kind of that end of the spectrum? What happens in the mundane and ordinary moments of life? Because let's face it, a lot of our life is full of ordinary and mundane moments where is God in those? And where is God when things aren't going well? Where is God in suffering? Often if we're influenced or we take on kind of the more sensationalist view, when we have an honest assessment at our seemingly ordinary life, then this is where it's pastorally risky because that kind of view can actually lead to deep insecurities because you look at what's happening in Acts, you compare it to your life and it doesn't match up and you go, well, maybe maybe God doesn't exist. We had friends a while ago who were really sensationalists. They were going to this church that was looking for all the, the amazing things. That was the hand of God. And then they realised that people weren't really being genuine about a bunch of the things that were going on. People would just make up stuff to kind of show that it was the hand of God, and when they started kind of exploring it and finding this thing out, because they didn't have a big enough view of God or an accurate view of, I think the the God that we see in Acts 16, they ended up walking away from Jesus altogether. Now I want you to sh- I want to show you from Acts 16 the passage today that both of those ways of reading Acts, a skeptic and the sensationalist, they're both wrong. So have a look with me now in verse 6 to 7 and answer this question. How does the Holy Spirit keep them from entering Asia and Bithynia? Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So how does the Holy Spirit keep them from entering Asia and and Bithynia there? It doesn't say. (laughs) Now we can, you know, make conjecture. It could have been a vision. It could have been an audible word from God. It could have been an angel with a flaming sword guarding the way. It could have just been this inner peace. It could have just been conversations that they had with one another and they made a decision. It doesn't say. And so we've got to be careful about the way we interpret this part of scripture we've got to be careful in how we apply this idea of guidance and the opening and closing doors within our life now come with me to uh, verse 10 as well and there's three key things I want us to see from verse 10 as we keep thinking this through after Paul had seen the vision we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them now, did you notice the we there in verse 10? So this is the moment in the book of Acts where the author Luke is actually with Paul. And so to the skeptic, I want to say this isn't some myth or legend that you can just explain away. Luke is writing to this guy called Theophilus and his purpose is to provide an eyewitness account. He sees himself as writing history. And it actually reads as history as you look at the geography or the the journey that they take. So you can't just explain this away. But because it is history to the sensationalist, I want to say Luke isn't being prescriptive here. He's not saying this is how they lived and so that is how you have to live. No, he's being descriptive here. He's saying this is what happened. Which in during what is actually this really unique period of history where the apostles are going to places and preaching the gospel that haven't heard about Jesus yet. The Acts 16 is the first time the gospel actually goes to the continent of Europe and they're laying the foundation of the word of God in what we have now as the New Testament. So this is a unique period of history, which means as we read Acts and think about applying it to our lives we actually have to weigh it up with other more prescriptive parts of scripture so paul's letters for example where he does write us commands and does tell us actually how we should live now there's two more things from verse 10 i want to point out look at how they deal with the vision and the open door to macedonia luke says that they concluded that god had called them to preach the gospel in macedonia now for christian sensationalists when god gives you an open door you got to walk through it (laughs) because when that seeming coincidence just happens for you in your life well it must be a god thing right and so you just got to walk through it and you just got to trust god in the amazing and the extraordinary and i reckon many of us can be tempted to fall into that way of thinking this simplistic view that God gives an open door and say, you just got to take it. It's amazing how many open doors God gives Christians for a job that they really want or a place that they really want to go and live and where the gospel ends up just being this afterthought. But for these Christians, even though they have been given this extraordinary vision, that is, a, that is a, a, an amazing thing, they still After they've been given the vision, they conclude, they think, they weigh up the information. They don't do it as individuals. They actually do it together as a collective. And then they make the decision to go to Macedonia. See, when God gives us open doors, I want to show you from the rest of Acts, it doesn't necessarily mean we actually have to take them. But why not? Why don't, if God gives us an open door, why don't we necessarily have to take it if we get that job offer or we have been given that house? And it's because there is a priority, a lens that we've got to put over all of our decisions and that lens is a gospel priority. See, what did they conclude in verse 10 again? They concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel in Macedonia. In verse 6, the closed door was the Spirit keeping them from preaching the gospel not Paul going into Asia to do tent making it was uh, a closed door to preaching the gospel then in verse 10 there's this open door and they conclude God is calling them to preach the gospel if this passage shows us anything about how God guides us in making decisions in life then it shows us that all of our decisions are to be made with the gospel as a priority And you see this again and again throughout Acts. So in Acts 20, when the Spirit warns Paul, both personally to himself, but also the Spirit warns Paul through others that persecution awaits him in Jerusalem. Some people conclude he shouldn't go to Jerusalem, that you should shut that door, Paul. And yet Paul says in Acts 20, he is simultaneously being compelled by the spirit to go to Jerusalem and give up his freedom and comfort to enter into persecution for the sake of a greater priority, testifying to the good news of God's grace. And so he makes the decision to go to Jerusalem. Friends, that's why Timothy at the start of the chapter, that's why he got circumcised he was happy, maybe happy is a strong word, but he made the decision to give up his foreskin so he wasn't a stumbling block because there was a greater priority the preaching of the gospel. See, whenever open doors are spoken about, and there's, a, there's a three other places in Scripture, in 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 2 and Colossians 4, whenever open doors are spoken about in Scripture, it's always spoken about in association with preaching the gospel it's not speaking about what job you should do or what house you should buy or who you should marry or where you should live open doors are always associated with the preaching of the gospel and in Acts 16 in the rest of the passage luke goes on to give us three stories to show us that this is exactly what is happening in philippi god has opened a door to macedonia to europe because he is going to open hearts through the preaching of the gospel. So let's have a look at the first story. Look at Lydia in verses 13 to 15. Paul and Silas, they head along in Philippi to a place of prayer, probably because there wasn't a synagogue there, but they're still going first to the Jews. And there, they, that's where we meet Lydia. Lydia is from Thyatira, which is in Asia where the door was closed, but she's over in Macedonia probably working because she's a dealer in purple cloth, which also likely means she owns her own business. We know she owns her own house later in the chapter and it, she's probably rich and she's a worshipper of God, a Gentile who's converted to Judaism. And look at what happens to the first person we meet in Macedonia. Verse 14, the Lord open her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now, on the surface, they're heading to this place of prayer. They're just sharing about how good Jesus is and why you need to put your trust in him. On the surface, that would have been a pretty mundane experience, a pretty ordinary experience. And yet Luke wants to highlight for us the hand of God at work in her heart, to open her heart, to take her from death to life, through the preaching of the gospel. This is an extraordinary thing. <laughs> an open door from God has led to Lydia's open heart. Her and her whole household go on to believe and be baptized. And then her open heart later in the story through the gospel leads her to open her home. And so the hand of God, it's not only at work in her salvation, but also in her transformation to show this sacrificial love and hospitality and generosity. So that's the first story. The second story, the second person we meet is a slave girl. So have a look at verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, it's interesting that they're going to the place of prayer again. We were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Now Luke goes on to say that she went around following Paul and Silas like a bad smell, shouting out that these guys are telling you how to be saved. And in verse 18, Paul becomes so annoyed, probably because she's detracting from the gospel message somehow. Luke tells us that the spirit that she has in the Greek, it's literally the spirit of a python, which means people in Philippi probably are associating her messages with a false God and not Jesus. And it disturbs Paul. And so we see the hand of God at work as Paul makes a decision for the sake of the gospel to drive out this evil spirit from this oppressed girl. But then in verse 19, this is where things heat up. Her owners aren't happy about this because their hope of making money through the girl is now gone. And so they drag Paul and Silas in front of the authorities and ironically, it's their Jewishness that they highlight because this is the first time the gospel is receiving persecution against from the Gentiles. And it's interesting that these guys they highlight their Jewishness instead of their actual motives. They're really just sad that they're not going to be able to make money from her anymore. And they essentially say that these guys they need to get their religion out of the public space. And so they call them out, there's a bit of a call out culture still back in the 1st century. They call them out for preaching the gospel And then how do you silence someone who you think is disturbing the peace in your city? Well, they strip them, they beat them, they severely flog them, and then they throw them into prison. But then in verse 25, look at how Paul and Silas respond. It's about midnight. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, it's obviously not a COVID-safe prison here, because they're singing in the midst of prison, but isn't it amazing that in the midst of such severe beating, such severe persecution, such severe suffering, that these guys can rejoice praying and singing to God? And this is where I want our view of God to be so much bigger, so much more robust than the sceptic or the sensationalist, because it is only through the hand of God at work in Paul and Silas's lives as they're strengthened through the Holy Spirit, that they could go through suffering this severe and still have this deep-seated joy. See, God is at work in the extraordinary, but he is also at work in the ordinary, in the mundane. He's even at work in the midst of the bad times and the suffering. Friends, he is at work in sustaining your very life at this very moment. He's telling your heart right now, beat, beat, beat. That is the sovereignty of our God. And that robust and big view of God at work in all facets of our life leads to a great assurance and that deep-seated joy no matter what circumstances we face. And we're going to see that, that change, this transformation happen in the next fellow we meet, the jailer. So in verse 26, that's where the earthquake happens and the doors of the jail, they literally fly open and the chains of Paul and Silas, they just miraculously fall off. Now, this is an open door, if I've ever seen one, right? The the jail doors, they're wide open because of this earthquake and yet Paul and Silas, they don't go through it. Why not? It's because they have a bigger priority than their freedom, (laughs) the preaching of the gospel. And so the jailer comes before Paul and Silas. He's trembling and look what he says to them in verse 30. He says, what must I do to be saved? He's obviously recognised that these, this joy in the midst of suffering that these guys can have, that this is the God that he wants to know. What must I do to be saved? And listen to the answer that Paul and Silas give in verse 31. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Paul and Silas gave up their opportunity for freedom. They turned down a seemingly open door for a greater priority of preaching the gospel to the jailer. And they get to tell him to be saved. You simply just need to put your faith in Jesus. You just need to believe in him, to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour because he has come and died for the forgiveness of your sins and he raised back to life so that you can have eternity with him. It's not by being a good person. It's not by going to church. It's not by trying hard that we're saved. It's by grace alone. And so through the persecution and the decision not to go through that open jail door, God opens the jailer's heart through the preaching of the gospel. And like Lydia, the jailer's open heart through the gospel leads him to open his home as well. And then look at this transformation that we see in him at the end of verse 34. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. The joy that Paul and Silas testified to... On that night in the jail cell is the same deep-seated joy that he now has and his whole household has through the gospel so friends where have we been a few days ago Paul and Silas Timothy and Luke they came to Philippi to preach the gospel for the first time in Europe and then after a few days look at where they leave off Philippi in verse 40 after Paul and Silas came out of the prison They went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Friends, by the hand of God, by that open door that led them to preach the gospel in Philippi, there is now a church established in Philippi meeting in Lydia's house. In a passage that started with disunity, that very human disagreement that actually led to two missionary journeys through the hand of God, Despite evil spirits trying to railroad the preaching of the gospel and persecution, Luke highlights for us these three extraordinary stories. A rich Asian religious businesswoman, a poor Greek slave girl, and a middle-class Roman jailer. It's like the start of a bad joke almost, but there's just so much diversity here. And Luke highlights these stories to us to show us how God wants to prioritise the gospel in our lives. Because it is through the gospel that God opens people's hearts to be saved. And in a world that is so divided by race and gender and socioeconomic status and where there's so much hostility, we see here at the end of chapter 16 that it's the gospel alone. It is the only thing in the world that brings true joy real freedom, transforming love and this ultimate unity for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Now, if you are not a Christian, then what do you need to do to be saved? It's just believe in Jesus. Believe who he says he is and that he died for your sins and that he rose back to life. For those of us who are Christian, Don't be a skeptic and don't be a sensationalist. The hand of God, it is at work in the extraordinary, but he is also at work in the ordinary and seemingly mundane times of life through the good times and the hard times. That is the big picture of the God that we worship. And so have assurance. Whatever your circumstances, he is with you and he is at work in your life through the amazing power of the Holy Spirit. And when it comes to divine guidance as Christians, you know what, sure, God, he is powerful. He can guide us through dreams and visions and audible voices and inner prompting in the spirit if he wants. He can do that. But throughout the rest of scripture, he doesn't make one promise that that is the way that he will guide us. In fact, he says, if if you do have an experience like that, you should really test it and weigh it up in other parts of the Bible like 1 John or 1 Thessalonians. But the way God has promised us, the normative way that he wants to lead us and guide us is through Jesus Christ and the preaching of his word, Hebrews 1. And although it can sometimes seem just so ordinary and mundane what we're doing right now, it is truly amazing. That by the grace of God alone, through the work of his Holy Spirit, he transforms us and renews our mind, Romans 12, so that we can know his will for us more and more. And if Acts 16 has shown us anything when it comes to making decisions in your life, then prioritise the preaching of the gospel. With every decision, ask, is this what is best for God's kingdom? Does this decision help me to serve others? Think in terms of loving people and preaching the gospel to see people's hearts open up to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now, how do we do that? Well, we just keep reading God's word. We pray, ask for wisdom when we're making decisions and chat with God's people don't just make decisions in your life as an individual we're so individualistic but God has given us each other as part of his means for grace so that we can chat with one another and and get wisdom from one another but what does it actually look like to prioritize the gospel in your life well on a micro level it's just everyday decisions prioritizing praying for those three people and taking opportunities to share the gospel with your friends who don't know Jesus. It's making that extra effort when you're tired to, to get along to encourage your brother, sister, brothers and sisters at Growth Group or to disciple your kids through teaching them about Jesus. But at a macro level, for some of us, prioritising the gospel will look like staying and investing in the gospel here in Newey and Lake Mac. Because friends, that, that picture we get of the Macedonian Macedonian man saying, "Come and help us," there are thousands of people who need Jesus in New Ian Lake Mac. And to stay here and invest in the gospel, it might mean saying no to the bigger house or the, the next promotion that that rips you from your relationships here. For some of you, it might mean considering giving up a day or two of work to focus more on actually preaching the gospel. It might be doing something like harvest to get more equipped to take on responsibility and lead within the church. But don't let comfort be the reason you stay in New Ian Lake Mac. But for some of us, at this macro level, what it looks like to prioritize the gospel will mean leaving New Ian Lake Mac. But not for a job, not for comfort, because you want to prioritise preaching the gospel, because you want to prioritise God's kingdom in your life. And friends, as a church, this is the kind of people we want to be. Every decision we make, whether it's big or small here at HBC, we want to keep prioritising the preaching of the gospel because it's through the preaching of God's word that God opens people's hearts to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Let me pray that we'll be a church that does that. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this amazing account in Acts 16 where we just see this journey of the apostles as they take the gospel into Europe. Lord, we pray that you would guard us in the way that we apply Acts 16 and that we will test even this sermon against the scriptures, against the word of God, because it is through your word that you reveal to us who you are and how you want us to live. Lord, we pray that you guard us from being sensationalists and over-applying acts. uh, And we pray that you guard us from being skeptics and under-applying acts. Lord, we pray that you would use us and help us to be thoughtful and mindful about the way that you guide us and the way that we make decisions in this life. Help us to be a people who prioritise the preaching of the gospel. And we pray that as we do that, acknowledging that you are so much bigger than we can ever imagine, that you will open people's hearts to come to know you and love you as their Lord and Saviour. Help us to be focused on that, not for our glory, but for your glory alone. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.